the word of the Lord. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Riley. It was August of 2014, and Ferguson was burning. I remember sitting in my apartment in the dark, looking at my phone, watching news feeds come in. My emotions wavered back and forth between sorrow, anger, frustration, compassion, confusion. I didn't know what theological categories to bring to bear on everything I was taking in. There were rioters and, and, and there were police in riot gear and there was military equipment in the middle of the street and there was this huge history of racial injustice and yet it was the homes and small businesses of people of color that were being smashed. And and I thought, what's going on? I'm not understanding this. I didn't know what to make of it. There was so much pent-up emotion, a volcano of anger erupting in an incredibly divided city with a really long history of injustice. How does the gospel speak into this? How does the gospel speak into the divisions of our own day? What does it mean then for the church as the vanguard of God's kingdom, the advanced troops, the beachhead of light in the midst of darkness? What does it mean for the church as the locust, the center of God's saving action on earth? What does it mean for us to be in a city like this, to be the family of God? What, what does God want of his church, particularly in so divided a city as St. Louis? And if St. Louis is divided, and it is, ancient Rome was even more so. The Roman elite, the aristocracy, the patrician families owned all of the wealth and held all of the power and all of the privilege. The poor were more numerous to count, but even among the poor there were gradations. Roman citizens certainly had, had more privilege than non-citizens, whether they had been born into their citizenship or had, had earned it through service to the Roman state. At the bottom of the heap you had the hundreds of thousands of slaves who were personal property and had few rights, if any, of their own. You had people from all over the empire in this 
cauldron city of Rome. Boiling up, you had people from Eastern Europe and from Germany and from Britain and from Egypt and North Africa, people from Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. People spoke Latin and Greek and Celtic and Germanic tongues and Aramaic and a and, and, and hundred other tongues. And, and there in the midst of this cauldron of people who hated each other, some with power, some with none, in the middle of it all was a church. A church of which we have one surviving piece of mail. It was written by St. Paul to the church in Rome. And we're going to read the very last chapter of that piece of mail reading emails of people or WhatsApps of people who died 2,000 years ago. The Bible is not a rule book. It is not a systematic theology. In this case, we're looking at a piece of mail. These were the original Christians in a divided city. And we have something to learn from them because we're going to figure out what they were like. We're reading Romans chapter 16. I'm going to read the whole chapter and you're not going to necessarily understand why I'm reading this particular chapter but it Lord willing will become clear Paul writes I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant deaconess of the church in Cancrea deaconess is the Greek I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, and not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. And greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. And greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachus. And greet Apelles tested and approved in Christ, and greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, and greet Herodian, my relative, and greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord, and greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord, and greet my friend Persis, my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord, and greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Greet Asyncrutus, uh, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, and brothers with them. And greet Philologus, and Julia, and, and Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, because all the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent and, and innocent about what's evil. 
the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, probably my countrymen, fellow Jews. I, Tertius, wrote down this letter. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who's the city director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. And now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. What do we see here? we see how incredibly diverse this church in Rome was. It was the only place like this in the entire city of Rome. Nobody crossed lines in the city of Rome in order to reach people who are different. That didn't happen. But these people, they have nothing in common but Jesus. Look at all these names. There are Gentiles all over this list, and there are Jewish people like Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, who were Jews all over this list too. Jews and Gentiles did not talk to each other. The Jewish oral tradition said, you know, you don't even, you do not even eat with a Gentile, not even to bring him the law. And they were big on bringing people the law. Um, you didn't mix, and they're mixing. You have rich people here, people who are so rich they could house a church in their own private residence. We're talking like Big courtyard, multiple rooms, you know, triclinium, dining room on the side with couches, and all these Christians, poor people, rich people, and Jews and Gentiles, all packed into their own home in order to have a worship service. You've also got poor people. You've got men and you've got women, and this is a group of leaders here. And almost half, it's about 45% of the names are female. Um, you've got Phoebe, who, uh, two possibilities. Either she was a servant, I mean, the word is servant, it's diakonos. She was a deacon of the church, deaconess of the church. Uh, some say, no, it just meant that she was the custodian. I don't think she would be listed if she, if that were simply the case, maybe. I don't know. Um, I do not think so. You've got very powerful people in this list here, like Erastus, the director of the city's public works department. Uh, you've got slaves, Stakus, my dear friend Stakus, is a slave's name. And you got this one Iranian woman, Persis, probably from, you know, we can't be sure, but probably she's Persian woman is what her name means. She's probably from the Parthian Empire, from the east, like the Magi. She was probably, her background was Zoroastrian when she came to faith. And these are just leaders. And granted, this was Rome. It was a very diverse neighborhood. Uh, capital of an incredibly diverse empire that stretched across national, racial, and ethnic divides. But in Rome, none of these people would have associated with one another except in a master-slave relationship. And consider the cost of diversity. For them, it would have taken constant work even just to meet together because, you know, understand in Rome... 
it was a crime to assemble. You know, in the United States Constitution or Bill of Rights, we have the, the freedom of assembly. And everybody, nobody ever talks about that because it's just given that you're allowed to hang out with other people. But in ancient Rome, the assumption was that if you, if a whole bunch of people started hanging out together who weren't related to one another, they'd start talking. Eventually, they're going to start complaining because they're humans. And back then, humans complained all the time. And once they start complaining, eventually they're going to start complaining about the government. And, and once they start complaining about the government, then they're going to start rioting, and then you're going to lose control, and you're going to have to send in the army and kill a lot of people, and then they're going to be mad, and so you're going to have to have troops stationed there permanently in order to keep them subject, and it's just going to be a mess. So it's just illegal to hang out with people you're not related to. Group assembly, the only you know, freedom of assembly they had involved furniture from Ikea. Sorry. I've been terrorized by too many Allen wrenches in my life. But it would have taken so much work just to assemble together on Sunday, on the day of the resurrection, as the church to, to worship and to take communion together. Uh, they would have had to have been sneaking through back doors, being discreet about where they met, keeping their voices down, uh, you know, because you could get in trouble big trouble it was a constant effort and then all these different people in the same room and some of them speak latin and some of them speak greek and some of them speak other languages and they have all these different traditions and backgrounds and cultures the first potluck and and everybody shows up and all the gentiles have brought you know ham and bacon and shellfish and the jewish folks are there and they're horrified they can't believe anybody would eat that stuff it's so unbiblical yeah, it, it would have been incredibly difficult to do community, incredibly hard for rich people, patricians, to associate with slaves as brother. It would have been so humiliating from their cultural background. It would have been difficult, and for a poor person or a slave to associate with a patrician would have been equally difficult because this was the subjugating class. Think of how hard it is, even just in a community group in St. Louis in, you know, 2020. Um, everybody wants a diverse community group. They value diversity. And yet, even just looking at age range, you have a community group. It's got about 12 people. Okay, you have one couple that are empty nesters. You have one married couple with high school age kids, one couple with elementary school age kids, one engaged couple and three single people because you can't just have two because that gets weird. And you've already got your 12. And what that means, the cost is there is nobody just like you in that group. You are the only one. Or you take a, group, a church of, of 350, 400 people and, and, and you want that to be a diverse church. Uh, the cost of that is that um, your kid may only have one other student their same age in the youth group because... You know, what we do in Western culture is we segregate people by age and stage of life, and that's how you end up, the, the alternative, if you can't pay that price, the alternative is you have the monoculture church where everybody in the church is 39 years old and still likes Coldplay. Uh, that's just how it works. I relate. Uh, think of the cost as well, uh, you know, crossing political, ethnic, racial, stage of life, economic differences, 
the, the cost of that, think of the cost of that specifically for the minority member, the one who is different from everybody else. Imagine you're the only Iranian in the Roman church. You're the only Persis. What is the cost of that? You have most of the church doing things in possibly Roman, but more likely Greek ways. Uh, Greek culture, Greek assumptions about how you do stuff. If that's the dominant cultural group within the Roman church at this time, it, you know, you, the dominant group probably doesn't even realize that they have certain set of cultural assumptions that to them seem like common sense, but to everyone else is a foreign language. Uh, it's certainly the case today in majority white American culture. Um, you know, there are just certain ways that we do things that we think are common sense, but which are actually very distinctly white cultural things. Uh, it's like if you could imagine any lefties, left-handed people out there, you'll understand, you get this. It's as if the entire world decided to create a world that is built to advance the wealth, comfort, and success of right-handed people. So you get those desks, remember in school, you know, reaching across to right on the desk? Or that the microwave, open the microwave door. Everything's backward, everything's wrong. And it's not that all the right-handed people got together and say, we need to repress the lefties. They just built what seemed like common sense based upon their own cultural experience. And diversity always has a cost, and yet within an American context, when speaking specifically of racial diversity, um, there is this added history of American racism that we have to deal with. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's what, what made Josephine Baker flee St. Louis and then eventually flee America because she spoke of, of the racism that, in her words, paralyzes one's very soul and body. Yeah, I remember sitting at a dinner table with, with Thurman Williams and his wife. Thurman is planting a new site for, uh, uh, for um, uh, New City Fellowship in the West End neighborhood. He had been one of the pastors at Grace and Peace Church. But I sat with him and his wife, and his wife was talking about raising their sons, and they're, they're really good sons. But she said that she didn't just have to talk to them about not hanging out with the wrong kids. She also had to talk with them about what to do when the police stopped them, how to speak, how to act. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, sir. Sorry, ma'am. Uh, what not to do. And, and how hard it was for her as a mother knowing that none of the white moms in her church had to do that not just overt racism we live in a culture that was created you know in many ways to advantage its dominant people group namely people who are white um peggy mcintosh it was probably 35 years ago that she um wrote an essay called unpacking the invisible knapsack because the idea was that um as a white woman she walks around all the time with an invisible knapsack filled with privileges that she can use in order to uh, deal with various situations and she never has to think about it because it's invisible to her she writes this she says if i move i can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me i can go shopping alone most of the time pretty well assured that i will not be followed watched or harassed 
Whether I pay with check, credit card, or cash, I can count on my skin color not working against the appearance of my financial reliability. She says, I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer anybody's mail without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, poverty, or illiteracy of my race. I can speak in public to a powerful male group without putting my race on trial. I can do well in a challenging situation without being called a credit to my race. I'm never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider. If a traffic cop pulls me over, I can be sure that I haven't been singled out because of my race. And I can go home from most meetings of organizations I belong to feeling somewhat tied in rather than isolated, out of place, outnumbered, unheard, held at a distance, or feared. It's hard to be the only Persis in the church at Rome. It's hard to be the one that's different. And in a context like St. Louis, remember Missouri was a slave state. It means facing things that you never really get over. Um, we have a deep, deep history. Uh, most of my ancestors came to America of their own free choice, but not all of us in this room can say that. We systematically dehumanized an entire people. We sold them into slavery. We sold them like cattle. We separated their families. We neutered their men. We violated their women just to render them hopeless and subjugated. And when slavery ended, we brought in Jim Crow with lynchings, with active discrimination in elections, discrimination in housing, discrimination in employment, in accommodation, and in mortgage lending going well into the end of the 20th century at least. You don't ever really get over that. In the 1700s, the Reformed Revivalist, the Calvinist Methodist George Whitfield, circulated a letter throughout the American South. He wrote this. God has a quarrel with you over your brutish treatment of the Africans among you. The Lord of the Sabbath has a quarrel with you. And if the slaves should ever be given the upper hand in the providence of Almighty God, and there was a great bloodbath, it would be unfortunate, but it would be just. There's the weight of history weighing against us with a history of such subjugation and injustice. Diversity in any context has a cost for the minority. And that cost is all the more costly when you layer over it a history of racism like we have here in St. Louis. But there's also a cost to diversity for the majority culture. For the majority culture in Rome, it would have been for the Greeks or for the Jews. It means realizing and relativizing your own deeply held cultural assumptions. We can't see and understand the impact of our cultural assumptions as, for example, a white American. Uh, I can't see the effect my assumptions have on other people who are different if I can't even recognize what those assumptions are. You say, Greg, I have no idea what you're talking about. I get that. White Americans, and, and realize I was raised white. Um, 
I, I love white people. A lot of my friends are white. But uh, white Americans, you know, we're the only people who think we don't have an ethnicity. We're not an ethnic group. We don't have an ethnic culture. Americans are the only people on the planet who don't think they have an accent. You say, no, Greg, we're good. We're vanilla. Here's the news. If there's just one thing you take home, could we get that picture? It's this. Vanilla is a flavor. Vanilla is not neutral. Vanilla is just one flavor among many, one culture among many, one set of assumptions. Vanilla is not objective. Vanilla is not normative. Vanilla is not the absence of flavor. And your assumption that it is is at the heart of a lot of pain and suffering and injustice and tears throughout the century. Your food, white people, just talk to you. Everybody else can just take a nap or check your phone. White people, fellow white people, your food is ethnic food with your white people casseroles. Greg, we don't have ethnic white people restaurants in St. Louis. It's called Panera, and it started here. I mean, there's nothing whiter than eating an unseasoned baked chicken breast on white bread with cottage cheese and a side salad. They don't eat that in South Asia. They don't eat baked potatoes either. Okay, so what are some of these white American cultural assumptions, just so that we can know that they're operating so that we don't let them become normative? Um, I have a list. It's very informal. It's scratched on post-it notes and transferred to my phone. The assumption that the ideal family is a mom, a dad, and children. How is that different from the rest of the world? Well, because in the rest of the cosmos, throughout all of history, the ideal family also includes grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and cousins, and you all live in the village together. You don't live separately. Or the assumption that a well-raised child is quiet and speaks only when spoken to. Or the ideal individual is self-sufficient. Or a good leader is someone who takes charge and gets things done. You didn't get that from the Bible. The Bible says a good leader is somebody who gets nailed to a cross for his enemy. Um, hard. It's a hard conversation. Um, assumption that the proper focus of attention is on the individual, not on the group. The ideal person is independent and autonomous. That individuals should control their environment. That competition is better than collaborative decision-making. That I have a right to personal comfort. The Bible doesn't give you that. But it's a white cultural assumption. The notion that conflict should always be avoided. Or that emotion should be avoided or hidden. How many of you have jobs that reward you for, hiding, for, for being emotional in the job site? Do any of you? Maybe if you're an actor or an actress. But by and large, white people are taught to stuff their emotions. And when other people get emotional, we interpret it as anger because we've been taught to stuff our emotion. Keep your voices down. Use your inside voice, especially when you're outside where people might notice. Or work hard and be sure to gain measurable results. Be polite as white culture defines politeness. Continually keep an eye on the clock and be punctual. Think of all those Bible verses about punctuality. Always do things in the most efficient manner. Very British. Always assume you can fix a problem. 
or better yet, always assume you should fix a problem, or better yet, assume that you're the person who's there to tell other people how to fix the problem because you're the one who's supposed to have the answers. When someone shows up at the door, ask them what they want because within white culture, relationships are transactional. They must want or need something. Otherwise, what are they doing here? Am I saying all this is bad? No. Don't hear what I'm not saying. White culture is not demon culture. White culture in many ways reflects the glory of God, the efficiency, the focus on getting things done, on hard labor, on personal responsibility. All of these are biblical values and commendable, but it's still a human culture. And, and, and when we don't assume that these assumptions are at play, we're going to assume that everyone else will play by the same rule book. And as a dominant culture, what that requires them to do is change their ways of doing, constantly adjusting in order to fit in, in order to be accepted, in order to be heard, or in order to advance in leadership. These cultural biases get their fingerprints all over churches. Uh, the early, and ours too. The early Christians, they would have had to work so hard to speak in ways that each other could understand instead of speaking in ways that were normative to them. Diversity means recognizing your own culturally held values, realizing the way your culture interprets and engages with reality, realizing it's not objective or necessarily right, realizing there are different ways to do things and those different ways are good. And on a personal level, it can mean owning the racism that you probably didn't know you had. Racism is, is in the air in American culture. We get so self-righteous when people talk about racism. I can talk to a friend of mine. I can say, you know, dude, you're not very generous of a person. He's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Dude, you don't really pray enough. I know, I know, I know. You struggle with lust like crazy. I know, I know. You can't get your eyes off a girl who walks by. I know, I know, I know, I know. You really have an anger problem. I know, I know, I know. And I think you're a little bit racist. Whoa, what do you mean? I am not a racist. You know, it's the one, one area where sin has not touched us. Uh, you know, I remember one black pastor at General Assembly a couple years ago. He got up in a room full of white pastors and he said, y'all need to understand I'm a racist too because I can't hear a white man speak with a southern accent without conjuring up all sorts of assumptions and judgments about him. I'll tell you when it hit me. Years ago, I remember... Uh, another shooting, Northside, another teenager arrested for the shooting. I just remember thinking, you know, I hope they throw the book at him because this has got to stop. And then the thought crossed my mind. What about that teenager just arrested for shooting somebody? What if it's a white kid with blonde hair and freckles, clean cut, wearing a Parkway West letter jacket? And then the thought hit my heart. Well, I wonder if he had a dad. I wonder if his parents loved him. I wonder what circumstances put him down a path that at 17 years old he's killing another person. And all of that empathy started to flood when I thought it might be somebody who looked like me. That empathy gap is what we call racism. It's the different rules that we apply to people from different backgrounds or different ethnicities or different racial groups. 
and being able to name that and confess it to God as sin and say, Lord, deliver this from me because it's evil. I should have empathy for everyone and not just for people who look like me. Repentance can mean privileging those who aren't privileged. It means using your privilege where you have it to reverse the system in order to balance the scales. It's not being colorblind. When you assume that, you assume you're just you assume everybody's just like you and you end up disrespecting them. It means giving up power in Acts chapter 6 when the the early church realized that 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 the Greek uh, Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. You know, he asked this Jewish group of Christians to elect seven people to make sure that everybody's treated fairly, and all seven of them ended up being Hellenistic Greek names. They didn't just put one of them on the board to help have diversity. They gave them the keys. You think of Acts 15 when the Jewish Christians are trying to decide what to do with Gentiles who become Christians and do they need to be circumcised. They say no, and they they could do the math. They could see there are a lot more Gentiles than us, and within a generation, the church had been overrun by Gentiles, and it lost its Jewish flavor and its Jewish culture, and that had to have been a significant loss to what had been the dominant group, but they were giving away power. Looking at Romans, these early Christians weren't just tolerating each other. Tolerance is passive. Tolerance doesn't says, I don't care. They're loving one another. They're investing with people who are radically different from themselves. But it always has a cost. How is it possible to pay the cost for biblical diversity? Well, it's possible because of what God has done, even as seen in this passage. This is something the Lord is doing by His Holy Spirit, and He's doing it intentionally and purposely because God has chosen to create a new family out of every people in the world, people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation and every language, to take them out of their families and create a new family that reflects the whole diversity of the world renewed and brought eternal life in Jesus. He has forgiven your sins. In verse 14, he says you've become brothers. In verse 24, he calls you brothers. That means your family. That means you've been adopted into God's family. That means God has taken all your liabilities and all your responsibilities and all your debts and he's taken them on himself and he has taken the responsibility to pay down your debt for you and he does it on the cross because he loves you and you're now his family. You know, look at Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, Christ himself is our peace who has made the two one. Talking about that huge gulf between Jew and Gentile. The purpose of God in Christ was to take two different races and join them into one, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, this means means diversity is not some minor adjunct to the kingdom of God, but is at the very center of God's eternal purpose in Christ. In Revelation 5, you, Lord, purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In Revelation 7, we see a multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. It's the purpose of God in Christ to wash us, to adopt us, to call us together into a new family, uniting us together in Jesus, who is mentioned in the Lord or in Christ, 
Your mystical union with Jesus Christ together in him is listed and mentioned in verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 22. How is it possible, friends? It's possible in Jesus because everything is possible through him. The third largest city in the Roman Empire was Antioch in Syria. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was multicultural. It was twice as dense as Manhattan is today with 18 identifiable ethnic quarters that were largely separated by walls so that the 18 different ethnic groups wouldn't kill each other. There were riots. Various groups had their cultures and their cultures had their religions. And Antioch was the first time the gospel came to a big, diverse, cosmopolitan Roman city. And what happens when the gospel comes to a diverse city? Tons of people were converted. The locals had to come up with a new name for this group of people. People started climbing over walls in order to worship with other groups, other ethnicities, racial barriers and religious barriers were being crossed. It didn't make sense to the people of Antioch They didn't understand why people of different races and different nationalities, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes would all climb over walls to gather together. They didn't understand what would have the power to make that happen or even why somebody would want it to happen. And yet they'd overhear bits and pieces of conversations. They would think they had it figured out because these people all seemed to come from the same place. They all talked about a place called Christ. And so they figured they must have come from a place called Christ because it's what they talked about all the time. It's the thing they had in common, a land named Christ. These people's home must be Christ. These people must belong to Christ. They must be family of Christ. They must be the people who come from Christ. And it's in Antioch that the followers of Jesus first came to be called Christians. Because when the gospel crossed all of those walls of race and ethnicity, nationality and wealth, when the gospel ran over all of those walls, they had to have a name for it. Because they'd never seen diversity like that bound together with loyalty and love. Lord, your gospel has the power to send us over a wall. And Jesus, you have made us to be a colony of heaven formed together on the surface of this earth. It is in Christ that we live, in Christ that we move, in Him that we breathe and have our being. It is in Him that we have been united to one another and united to one another in You. Thank You, Lord. Bind us together, Lord, as Your family. Help us, Lord, to give away privilege. Help us to love and not to tolerate and grow in us the love of Jesus who has loved us and washed us and made us alive. We thank you, even as we consecrate to you the elements on this table, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.